here's a task that I set to myself uh, for teaching tonight. I want to start with uh, Donald's wonderful question this morning and Mary's wonderful answer to it. And uh, I'm sure you remember that uh, Donald asked the question, how does the instruction nothing to do fit or fit with or reconcile with the path of the bodhisattva, although suffering is endless, I vow to end it. And Mary's answer, which I'll try to recapitulate, she said it so beautifully. I hope that what she said is, I hope this is a fair rendition of what she said. I think what she said is, (laughs) in order to see suffering clearly and to hold it with the wisest understanding and to respond to it with wise action, the kind of action that does not create its own negative karma, requires that we stop resenting and demanding that things be different that we see what they are without resenting and demanding that they be different. I am awake does not mean I am passive. Donald also said, I'm sure you remember, I think this question might require a whole talk as an answer. (laughs) So, (laughs) here is an attempt at an answer And it's twofold. I have two things in mind. That's a philosophical question. And it's a very important philosophical question because it has to do with what are we doing here. And really my intention and my zeal and practice is fired up by the fact that I think this has to do with addressing with a whole heart, a whole mind, and all of my passion, all the suffering in the world. And that's really what inspires my zeal and practice. And what I want to talk about is how does what we do here, sitting and walking, returning the attention, coming to interviews, talking about your experience, how does that relate to the goal of being available to see clearly the suffering in the world and relate to it? How does this very simple practice that we do here together connect with that very lofty and wonderful, really unsurpassable goal that we have in mind for each of us. Because when you think about it, uh, that uh, it, it's, uh, I was thinking with some amusement about how we've said a number of times, nothing to do, and still, you come to an interview, and we tell you what to do. <laughs> and you come in here, and we give instructions, as if there's something to do. Over and over again, we say, rest the attention with the coming and going of the breath. When the mind is filled with a strong emotion, when the mind is filled with thoughts, we have been saying, when you can, when you notice, let the attention rest again with the breath. Now we are saying, Let the attention rest with what's the strongest thing that's happening. 
Why are we saying all these things? And if there's nothing to do, why do we use terms like we're refining the practice? I heard myself say that yesterday. Or um, uh, coaxing along the leading end of the practice. If there's nothing to do, what practice will we coax along? And certainly it's not the practice of watching your breath, of being with the breath. We're not here to become breath experts. Or <laughs> we all breathe perfectly well, or we breathed as well as we breathe, and will breathe before we got here. And it's not to become experts in walking as well. We did that also. So towards what end? How does this practice that we do here, so easy to say, so difficult in fact to do, which many people have brought up, what do these instructions have to do with healing the world? How do we get there? It was also uh, part of that that answer was hidden in, uh, not so hidden, actually apparent, in uh, the story that Mary told last night about people uh, seeing the Buddha and being uh, so struck with his special aura, his special um, sense about him, and uh, asking him kinds of questions about what are you? Are you a deity? No, I'm not. Are you a man? No, I'm not. What are you then? I am awake. I was thinking about the kinds of feelings we have when we wake up from a sleep, from a dream and a sleep. When we sleep and we dream, we could dream whatever. It could be a fantastic dream, an amazing dream, an intricate dream. It could be a... Uh, a wonderfully uh, erotic and sensual dream. It could be a terrifying dream, frightening dream, furious dream. And then we wake up all of a sudden and we say, oh, this is what's really happening. For the time that the dream was happening, that captivated all the attention. And it made all kinds of feelings in the body. When dreams are very strong, you get up and you feel them in your body for a while. To get up, turn on the light, calm down a little bit. and say, oh, this is what's really real. There's the world. There is a world. There are people. There is me. There is a world. There are people. There is suffering. There's pain. We begin to see past the absorbed in one's own story experience of a dream. We dream while we're up as well. We dream a lot. There's a dream teller, storyteller. The endless elaborations, a narrator, a storyteller, that makes endless elaborations and commentaries and fantasies and projections and proposals and reflections and speculations and tireless and doesn't get quiet. It makes all these stories all the time and as a result of the stories fear arises in the mind, lust arises in the mind, confusion arises, mind gets tired, seeing anything clearly becomes impossible. It is the same as if we were asleep. The kind of sleep that's self-absorption. We could be walking around 
not in our beds, eyes open and asleep (laughs) to what's happening. And every once in a while, we wake up and we say, Ah, here I am. And there's a world and there's people and there's pain and there's suffering. I think what happens is that the narrator, the endless storyteller, kidnaps the attention, runs off with it in some way, holds it hostage, enslaves it. I think a lot about, we use the word liberation a lot and freedom when we talk about waking up and practice. I think that our attention becomes enslaved and held captive. Can't see anything. We can't see past the borders of our own fantasies and our own constructions and our own mind habits and our own pain and our own hurt and our own woe, our own guilt. And I think about moments of liberation where just for a moment, or maybe for a few moments, we're free. The attention is liberated. It turns the other way. It looks around and says, oh, there's a world with people, with stuff, with pain, with joy, with beauty, with everything. There's a world out there. This is all connected, but there's a world out there. I think to myself sometimes that it's as if we have two ways in which we can look. The heart or the mind can look out and see what's there and respond, or it can be caught looking in at itself. I don't think we're not supposed to look at ourselves and our own experience and know our own experience. I just think we're not supposed to get caught anywhere. Not caught there, not caught here, not caught. I think we most often get caught. This is a hint for practice. This is now a practice instruction. I've been listening and saying this with people throughout the day. I think we get caught in commentary. You never read a text that has a text in the body of the page and then it's got commentary around the borders of the page. Here's the text and here's the commentary. And I think that much of what we tell ourselves about what's going on is commentary. I listened throughout the day. You think about yourself. Someone will say, I'm very sleepy. I'm convinced I'll never be a good meditator. I can't possibly be a good meditator. Here I am on my fifth day or my sixth day and I'm still sleepy. And I heard that there are other practices that are not so sleepifying. Only the first sentence is the truth. I'm very sleepy. After that, it's all commentary and projection and thought and speculation. But we do that. We start with a thought and then we make a big commentary, and most of the commentary is demoralizing. It's not helpful. I think was thinking about, um, uh, oh, here's a very mundane kind of example. We make commentary, I'm sure you do as well. I certainly do all day long on this is, I'm pleased, I'm not pleased, I'm pleased, I'm not pleased. You can go into the dining room and see the lunch. I can remember spending tremendous amounts of time early on in my practice planning things I could tell the cooks about 
what they could do differently. Kevin, the truth of the moment might be you look at the lunch and you say, once again, celery in the salad. I don't actually. I I actually don't like celery. I like everything else in the whole world, but not celery. I was convinced. I was convinced that the cooks. I, I imagined their shopping list. I thought that celery was the first thing on the shopping list. That they didn't know how to start to cook without chopping celery. And so you look at, the, and, and the truth is, when you look, you say celery again in the salad, or in the vegetable stew. That's true. So far, true. After that, you have two paths that which you could go. One is the path of telling the cooks how to do it differently and how you would do it differently if you were a cook, and they must not think and all of that. And the other one is the path of saying the truth. Once again, celery. I don't like celery. I am hungry. I'm eating the celery. (laughs) I don't like it very much. But it's not terrible. And I'm hungry. And now I'm not hungry anymore. I ate enough. I'm not hungry anymore. I'm full. Once it's in and I'm full, I don't feel the pain of hunger. It's the same if it was celery or not celery. Sated is sated. It doesn't matter what went in. If I were really alert, if I were really paying attention, what I would really notice is that things pass, that hunger, when it's met with food, passes. If I were really alert, I would notice the pain of hunger. If I were really, really alert, to the pleasure of feeling fed, given the information I know, I might think about the half, 50% of the people in the world who don't have enough to eat, who are always hungry. And I might wonder about how my life could make a difference for them and how what I do might make a difference for them. And I might do that all around the celery if I paid attention to it. There is no single act, there is no single moment, there is no single experience. I trust this is true, that if we paid attention to it, would not wake us up to the truth of how things are with us, with the world, with experience, and we would want to make a difference out of the experience of our own pain out of compassion for all beings. I, uh, uh, years ago, uh, had an interview with Chagdut Rinpoche. He was, is, is, wonderful teacher in the Tibetan tradition. And uh, he was in the Bay Area, and uh, the word was out that he was seeing people in individual interviews if you wanted to see him about your practice. And it was a time in my practice that uh, my practice is characterized by very strong emotion, uh, energies in the body that were somewhat quite overwhelming to me. Um, interesting, uh, sometimes wonderful, sometimes painful. And uh, I thought, well, the Tibetans know a lot about energies. I'll, I'll have an interview with Chagdit and he'll probably know what I should do to fix this. So I made an appointment and uh, I went to see him. 
I think I also privately thought, not so private because I caught myself thinking about it, that uh, privately hoped that Chagdad Rinpoche would be impressed with my practice, that he would think it was exotic or interesting, because even though it was not that comfortable, it was somewhat painful actually, it was pretty exotic, at least to me it was exotic. (laughs) I probably had a loftier view of what all those energies meant than what they actually mean. Actually, what they mean is you have a lot of energies. That's what they mean. Uh, you could have them without a lot of wisdom. But anyway, I thought maybe Chagdad might be impressed. And I went and told him my whole story with proper respect, surely. I thought he was wonderful. And he listened so sweetly and carefully and got all finished listening. And he said, uh, I was expecting for him to tell me, breathe this way, say this mantra, do this, do that. He said, how much compassion practice do you do every day? So I didn't expect that. And I made up some answer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I did. That's the truth. It was a good answer, actually. I did the textbook answer about in this practice when you see clearly the insights of impermanence and suffering and interconnectedness and wisdom arises, compassion is a fruit of wisdom. Everybody knows that it's in the textbook. Anyway, I said it nicer (laughs) than that. But I got all finished, and he said, no, really, how much compassion practice do you do every day? So I... uh, I said, I don't know, what should, what do you mean? (laughs) And he said, how much do you really go out in the street every day and look around and look at people? And um, this is 15 years ago, I think, that this happened. And over the 15 years, I've learned more and more from that one statement that he made, more and more from that one little interview. I learned a lot from the fact that when I thought back after it, I thought to myself, maybe I should feel humiliated. Maybe I made a fool of myself. Maybe Chagda saw that I was showing off a little bit. Maybe I showed off that I was too self-absorbed, too taken up with my own story. Maybe I should feel humiliated or embarrassed or ashamed. But he was so kind. I don't think he felt a moment of anything but compassion for me. And then for a while I thought, well, maybe he meant I should go and look in the street and see people in desperate situations in the street. Because sometimes when you go out, you see people in desperate situations, people who don't have a home to go to, and people without resources. I actually have begun to appreciate that you can't do it, appreciate that people are suffering by looking at how they look. I think we all are. And sometimes it shows on the outside, physically, in some way, or by the circumstances of how we live. But I am convinced that we all are held captive by the pains of our lives, 
by what has happened to us, what's been done to us, by the pain of what we've done to other people, which I think stays in our hearts until we bring it up and see it clearly and reflect on it and feel contrite about it and are moved to make a difference in the world because of it. Because of the habits of our own mind that continually tell us confusing and beguiling and intoxicating stories. So the hint for practice, I think, is when we say there's nothing to do, I think what we mean is don't do anything to hide from this moment. Stay right there. Don't go away. Don't duck. Don't resent it. Don't struggle with it. It's the truth of the moment. It's just what is. I am much more comfortable when I tell myself the truth and name it, even if it's a painful truth when I am able to land in the middle of my experience and say, I am frightened, or I am sad, I am filled with grief, then it's just what it is. Sometimes it's painful. Sometimes it's whatever it is. It's just what it is. And then something else happens, and then something else happens. And it passes, because everything does. And everything that happens, everything that happens, if you land in the middle of it, and you pay attention to it, is a potential (coughs) birthplace of wisdom. There isn't anything that we cannot learn from, that we cannot wake up from. Just what this moment is. First noble truth is the truth of dukkha. Sometimes it's translated in English as suffering. But suffering isn't quite how we use suffering in English. In English we usually mean lots of pain. There are moments that aren't painful. Unsatisfactory is another uh, translation of dukkha. Unsatisfactory in in its transiency, in its ephemeral nature, that there's nothing you can count on lasting. I've been thinking that maybe uh, another translation of dukkha is everything is poignant. Everything is touching in a certain way. touching because it's painful and pain is really hard or it's touching because it's lovely it's a moment of loveliness and when a moment is lovely and we're there for it we realize how much we yearn for that sort of moment and the yearning has a kind of poignancy about it and when it passes there's a yearning for it. 
wishing that it had stayed. There's a poignancy about that. The poignancy of knowing. It's just what it is, moment to moment. We're not in charge. There's no place to rest. And see if we pay attention in any moment of experience. The tendencies of the mind that are just the natural tendencies of the mind. It's not different for for anyone else than anyone else. The tendency of the mind to really want lovely moments, lovely times, lovely experiences to stay, to grieve their passing, but to want them to stay, to figure out how they can stay. It comes up in practice sometimes when um, here's a practice hint. Sometimes it happens that there's all of a sudden quite a lovely meditation experience. Everything has been perhaps confusing or distressing or pain in the body or pain in the mind or restlessness. And all of a sudden, lovely. All of a sudden, attention floating with the breath, body open and spacious. Thoughts come and go, a lot of ease, pleasure, warmth. Ah. And then the thought, Hmm. I wonder how come this happened. (laughs) Probably it was because I'm leaning a little bit to the right and I'm breathing in particularly long breaths. So I'll just continue. Don't do it. Don't do it. It's here as long as it's here. The movement of the mind in the direction of pulling, creates the tension, and it's gone. It is what it is as long as it's there. That's the nothing to do. There's nothing to do. And sitting, there's some distress, some movement in the mind. What could I do to get rid of this? What can I do to fix it? Just to be able to stay not add to it with fixing, with pushing, with pulling. That this is what's here. The second noble truth is that truth of needing it to be different, of craving it to be different. Actually, needing is a, is a small word. The Pali word is tanha. It means thirst or craving. really has to be different. I need it to be different. To be able to say, I don't need it to be anything but what it is, is the biggest liberation. Doesn't mean I wouldn't like it to be different from what it is. Doesn't mean that we've forgotten the difference between pain and not pain. It just means we have in that moment enough poise, enough equanimity, and enough wisdom to know this is what's happening. This is what's happening. It's okay. It'll change. It'll pass. And the third noble truth said every once in a while, it does pass. 
There are moments of real peace. There are periods of real peace. Someone said in an interview today, a couple of people said, might have been you, I'm feeling pretty relaxed. My body feels good. I sit, I feel myself sitting. I'm with the breath a little bit, not all the time. Thoughts are coming and going all the time, but nothing's getting stuck. I thought to myself, and I said to whoever said it to me, those, those are the key words, nothing's getting stuck. That's the way the mind operates. Thoughts come and go. Sometimes people have uh, um, an idea, especially because we encourage you to rest the attention mostly in body sensations and breath, especially as we get started and settle down, in order to cultivate composure so that we can pay attention in the broadest way. And because if our bodies are well and our breath is a non-conflictual activity, that often is a source of composure. People get the idea that somehow thoughts are enemies or that thoughts are wrong or that the point of practice is to end up without thoughts. But that's not so. I mean, thoughts happen all the time. Cognition is a form of thought. I mean, the mind, the, we get around because we think. There are particular thoughts that are perhaps not so helpful in practice, those very thoughts that are stories. I think that maybe when we work with the instruction, don't get lost in thought, we might remind ourselves more quickly if we said to ourselves, don't tell, us, don't tell a story. Don't do commentary. Saying what it is is not a story. Saying what it is is a perception. And this is what's happening. This is what's happening. This is how I feel. This is what's going on. Those are all thoughts. They are fine. The stories are what kidnaps the attention, exhausts the mind, creates fear, creates tension, creates suffering. It's not that exotic, the experience of the third noble truth, peace is possible. I was, uh, I learned it uh, for the first time quite strongly uh, in uh, Santa Sabina. It's not that exotic, the experience of the third noble truth, peace is possible. I was, uh, I learned it uh, for the first time quite strongly uh, in uh, Santa Sabina, um, it's a lovely monastery up in Santa Rosa. I can remember the experience of sitting before lunch one day out on a bench outside the, uh, uh, the building. And I'd gone out to walk, and I sat down on the bench. And it was a few minutes till lunch, and actually I was hungry. Um, and uh, it was a February or March day, just like today, it was overcast, and uh, the trees not quite budding yet, and a little bit cloudy. And 
just damp, not actually falling rain, but just damp. And I thought, I'd been walking for a while, and I thought, well, I'll just sit down here on this bench. And I sat down on the bench, I was really paying very careful, close attention to my experience, noticing it, naming it, knowing it. And I was at ease in it. I noticed that I was hungry. The bench was cold. I sat, and then I noticed that I heard the bell ring for lunch. I was sitting with my eyes closed, but heard the bell ring for lunch. And I realized I heard the bell, and no particular feeling arose in my mind to rush and get lunch. I knew I'd get up and get lunch, and I was hungry. But I was just sitting there. It was like no imperative about it. Didn't feel a rush, didn't feel a need. And I noticed that I didn't. And then I noticed how peaceful it was, not to need it. I knew I'd go and eat, but I didn't need it right then. And I knew the bench was cold, but I knew I'd get up off it soon. My eyes were closed, and then because I'm a sort of fanciful and dramatic person, I thought, if I open my eyes now, I'm probably enlightened, you know, because this is probably a moment of enlightenment, the heart completely and perfectly at rest. If I open my eyes, probably everything will have an aura and be glowing, and it will look differently from when I close my eyes. And I opened my eyes, and it was a gray day in Santa Rosa. <laughs> looked just like here today. And the trees had not burst into flower. And the sun had not come out. It was still a little bit drizzly. I thought to myself, far out. This is really great. This is really wonderful. A peaceful heart is a possibility in the middle of a life. I remember who I am. I remember where I am. I remember that I'm hungry. I remember that whatever the problems in my family life at that time were happening, were happening. Even as I tell you now, I remember which problems were happening in my family life. Right then, the life doesn't go away, and the problems don't go away, and the stuff doesn't go away, and it's just okay. It's just fine. And the pleasure of a peaceful heart is amazing. And it's not that exotic. And there's no one here who hasn't had it. And it's not that far away. It's in any moment that the mind is balanced. In any moment that it doesn't need anything else. I just remembered a story that I've told for years that I need to change because it's wrong. <laughs> I used to tell a story about um, this. This actually did happen. Um, I, I used to. Uh, I used to tell a story about uh, that I hope would inspire confidence about um, everybody's ability to carry on with whatever. Uh, the story I told was uh, that I was having lunch with my friend Mary, who's been my very long time 
a spiritual friend for about 30 years. And we were going to teach a class together. And uh, we suddenly realized that it was quite, we were almost late. And so we got up from the lunch table where we'd been eating lunch. And I scooped up all my books and I took my sweater and we were at my house having lunch. And we were going out the door and uh, I looked down at my pile of books and all kinds of stuff that I've taken. And I said, wait a minute, Mary, I don't think I have everything I need. And she said, uh, in a way that she has of being quite confident that she's right, she said, sweetheart, you're never going to have everything you need. (laughs) And I have taken that as a great source of comfort over the years when, on the level of, I could have prepared more, I could have thought more, I could have brought more, I could have made it more poetic, I could have this, I could have that. I could have always, but whatever it is, we didn't. We're here. Each of you is here with whatever mind and heart and body equipment we brought. But Mary is wrong, and I have been wrong. We have everything we need. We have everything we need. So I am publicly changing the story in this moment, (laughs) having taught myself the real true answer two minutes ago. It's wonderful to get to teach you learn. What we're doing here is we're discovering in moments of composure what keeps us from clarity. Because we discover that we have moments when we're clear, when we're at ease, and we see over and over again that we confuse, we get frightened, we yearn, we grieve, we worry, we fret, we get all absorbed in our stuff, and then we're at ease again. And we look around and say, oh yeah, there's a world and people just like me. Not to negate one's own stuff, but to remember there's other people with stuff. That the lens is not stuck here. The lens looks here and the lens looks there. Lens looks here and the lens looks there. And the more we look at our own suffering, the more we see it around. And sometimes we, sometimes there's maybe the possibility, I have certainly done it, of being so struck with what I see is monumental pain that someone is dealing with that I feel embarrassed about my pain and ashamed that I'm absorbed with it. I feel spiritually wrong. I shouldn't be absorbed. I shouldn't, I say to myself, be absorbed with my pain because after all, so-and-so's pain and this pain and the situation in the world pain. Stephen Levine, years and years ago, said the one sentence that has helped me the most about that over the years. He said, pain is pain. Really, you can't make a hierarchy of pain. He said, a headache feels the same if it's a migraine, if it's a tumor, if it's a whatever it is, a headache is painful. Loss is painful. We cannot decide this loss is a small loss. It shouldn't be painful to me. My friend's loss, now that's a big loss. That My friend has a right to feel grieved. I should rise above it. But the truth is, loss is loss and it's painful. Pain in the body is painful. Everything 
that pain is pain. And when I am able to recognize, particularly when I'm able to recognize that in a life of relative comfort, in the in the in the looking around in the world, it's not even relative comfort. I am reasonably sure that I am more physically comfortable in my way that I live, just by the circumstances of my life. And you're probably right up there with me as well. In the one percent, maybe, of people in the world, top one percent of physical, material comforts in the world, and to see that in that still, it's not material comforts that make us happy, or content. The only abiding source of contentment is a peaceful heart. The only way to have a peaceful heart is to have a wise heart. And the only way to have a wise heart is to be able to stay still long enough to see what's true. What's true is that things are just what they are. Conditioned by everything that ever happened, caused by everything, affected by everything, How do we get from here to there, from sitting and walking to healing the world? I love the uh, uh, image Mary had in her poem last night about um, the trunk full of stuff that we bring with us here. My experience with that trunk, I once, many, many years ago, heard a talk when I was a young psychologist by... um, Another psychologist, I certainly mean no, anyway, I don't know what I mean. It was a very, I I didn't want to make a disclaimer about anything that might not be true. I actually didn't agree with him, that's more true. Someone said, when I work with clients as a therapist, I say to them, when you come to see me, I want you to leave all your old baggage at the door and will come and leave all those valises of stuff, all those suitcases, leave them at the door and we'll start new. And I thought to myself, I thought to myself, in my experience, those suitcases, which are in fact steamer trunks, (laughs) have glue on the handle and we cannot put them down at the door. They stick. We'd like to put them down at the door. If we could put them down at the door, we would put them down at the door. Nobody likes to drag that stuff around with them. It's very painful. And to have all that stuff in it, not to say, to carry it around. Because the thing that happens on retreat especially is they always fall over, the top opens, and they all fall out on the floor. (laughs) That's what happens with those trunks. The minute the mind a little bit focuses... The whole contents of the trunk is out all over the place. And then you have the rest of the time to sort it, look at it, deal with it, look at it, try to throw it away, find it sticks to your hands, find that you threw it away one day, it's back in the trunk the next day. So the most asked question in interviews I think, in my experience, 
The question that people ask most, I'm going to put it in the generic form, you can put in the exact form to suit your circumstance. The question that's most asked is, a particular story, and with that story a strong emotion keeps coming up. Should I let my attention be with that story, or with that emotion, or come back to the breath, or to the movement, or to eating, or to sounds? And I say, yes. <laughs> That's the answer. And then we talk about how. I say yes, because any of them, any of those, any of the above, is not moving away from the truth of that moment. And say, I was overwhelmed with that feeling, and I couldn't bear it, so I took some deep breaths. I moved away from the feeling and I took some deep breaths. I went back to the breath. No one goes anywhere. It's all right here. Nothing goes anywhere. It's a skillful, wise choice in the moment. Lots of things are happening, not just one thing. Now this is a story, then I'll go to the breath, then I'll go to this. They're all happening at the same time. So there's the truth that What you can do, always, is tell the truth of that moment. Whichever aspect of the truth contributes to the balance of that moment. I'm filled with this enormous feeling which has frightened me. And I'm breathing, and I'm breathing, and I'm breathing, and I'm feeling more calm, and I'm taking another breath, and then I'm waiting, and then I'm having a thought, and the thought's bringing a feeling, and I feel this feeling, and it brings back a memory. And my body is shaking, and my body is shaking, and I'm taking a breath, and it's on and on and on. It's not A or B or C. It's here. It's here. As it's here, what happens is that the story gets acceptable so that you can stand it a little bit more. We're healing a lot. I think of this as a kind of healing for a post-traumatic stress disorder. But it's both the traumas of what's happened to us and the trauma of what we've done to other people, both ways, I think. We're healing our hearts. Staying with the truth of the moment. Just tell the truth. Choose wisely. Do what you need to do to stay balanced. My teacher, Joseph Goldstein, told me that once in response to a long, long story that I said about should I do A, should I do B, this, that, up, down. I finished the whole story. He said, do whatever you need to do to stay balanced. That has seemed to me the generic best answer to every possible question that people might ask. Do whatever you need to do to stay balanced. Choose wisely. Use patience. Be patient. We're changing habits that are at least one lifetime long. I think of it as moving the rocks on the shore of the Mississippi. And the river turns slowly, one rock at a time. Don't have to do it immediately. There's no way that we're ever finished anyway. So we just do as much as we can do for the rest of our lives.
there isn't an end. Be really kind to yourself. Really have to forgive what the mind does. I think of it really often in terms of um, a two-year-old. It just does whatever it wants to do. And if it's your two-year-old, it irritates you sometimes and it tries your patience a little bit, but you're really kind to it because that's what two-year-olds do, just whatever they want to do. And we guide them. We say, this you can act on and that you can't act on. This would be good to act on and wholesome and helpful. This would be not good to act on, not so helpful, not so helpful. But you really need to forgive yourself. I have a hard time with that sometimes. I feel really badly when I uh, do something, say something mostly that I think is hurtful. I make every attempt that I can with whoever it is that's involved, if I can, to fix it up. Sometimes it happens to me that I can't fix it up. And sometimes it happens to me that I get all caught up in a lot of pain from bad stories about that mistake. And I'm very happy when that moment of awareness arises that reminds me that unless I can forgive myself, I'm really going to continue to suffer. And really the contrition and the remorse and the pain that I feel about it and the pleasure of the release from pain, if I can forgive myself, is such a motivator to not create suffering, to not create pain, to think before I talk or before I act. When you are practicing here, be very kind to yourself. Catch those moments where you've made decisions about how your practice is. It's not good enough, it's not this enough, it's not that enough. It's fine. It couldn't be better. It couldn't be better. That's absolutely a fact. It's what it is because of everything in your whole life It couldn't be better. It couldn't be different from how it is now. Really, to do this practice is to forgive the whole life. Resting the attention in the breath when times are difficult. Staying just with the movements of the body when the mind is frayed and distraught is not getting away from it. It's not um, suppressing or repressing what needs to come up. It's really a skillful means. It's really a form of determination. I am not leaving. I am staying right here. I'm going to do this. Try to be really steadfast in the practice. doesn't mean grit your teeth. This is not grim. I do a lot of uh, remembering to smile. It's not grim practice. It doesn't need to be complicated. 
But the steadfastness has to do with continuity. It's a very simple practice. There's so little to do here. If we just did getting up, getting dressed, coming here, resting the attention moment to moment in what's the truth, walking, resting the attention moment to moment in what's the truth, sitting, up, down, up, down, eat, up, down, up, down, eat. That's it. It's not more complicated than that. I think of the, I, I don't think of it as a 45 minute sit and a 45 minute walk. I think of it as a morning of practice, then an afternoon of practice. Actually, I like to think of it as a day of practice or a week of practice. There's a kind of pleasure that comes from the sense of I'm doing this really impeccably. Impeccability is a great word. I heard it when I first started my practice. I don't know if I'd ever heard it before, but I love that. Just it's a very simple practice. When people are impeccable in their practice, even in keeping the form, it's such a thrill for everyone else. It really picks up the whole community. You look out, here's everybody sitting. You don't know what's going on with them, but they're sitting. It's so heroic because you know that all kinds of stuff are going on with everybody, but they're there. It's so inspiring. You see people walking back and forth carefully. You don't know what storms are going on. Might be complete bliss, might be a huge storm, but they're doing it. It's so inspiring. Your impeccability will inspire other people and it will inspire yourself. It's a cause of confidence and faith in yourself. I really want to urge you to do that. Pay attention to cause and effect. Pay attention to thoughts lead to this feeling, this feeling leads to that, this leads to that, that leads to this. There's a way in which when we see that really carefully, not only are we reconfirmed in our determination and zeal and energy for practice, discover that if we spend a whole three-hour block just practicing, the attention is really clear, then we do it more. This leads to that. And then in the largest sense, we have an appreciation and an understanding of the whole world. Things are the way they are because of what's been, because of this then that. It's a lawful cosmos. Experience is lawful. What happens is the lawful consequence of actions. That means that everything that we do, every single thing, makes a difference. That's really where we connect with the intention of the bodhisattva, to make a difference in the world by making a difference in our own heart. This heart is the only one that I am responsible for purifying. To the degree that I do it, the actions that I do will make a difference in the world. What I tried to do in all of those hints was to uh, mention one way or another the ten paramitas, the ten, um, the ten capacities of mind that the uh, Buddha as a bodhisattva in lifetimes of training perfected 
on his way to becoming the Buddha, getting ready to be the Buddha, and presumably are the qualities of a completely awakened mind, quite spontaneously. The only one I didn't mention was the first one on the list, which is the paramita, the quality of generosity, of giving freely. Sometimes it's talked about just in terms of the kinds of gifts that we give to people, a a thing gift, a material gift. I think it's all generosity. I think when I think about practice, you have each given yourself the gift of practice. You've given yourself the gift of this time, the gift of the possibility of awakening. I'd like to suggest that the practice instruction is also to give away something. Give away every thought of how it ought to be, because it's just the way it is. And then you won't need anything. And if you don't need anything, you'll be quite peaceful and happy. Your mind will be clear and alert. And you'll be able to look inside and outside, see causes and effects, see the great possibility and pleasure of peace and the great pain of being enslaved and caught, and seeing that peace is really possible and that suffering exists. All of us will be moved to change it. So let's sit a little bit. Thank you very much. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on February 10, 2000. It is an offering of the Dharma.